This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Welcome back to a complete history of Manchester United. I'm your host, Wayne Barton, joined as always by the legendary football writer Paddy Barclay to take you on this journey through Old Trafford history. If you're watching the video, please give it a like and subscribe. Join in the conversation in the comment section. If you're listening back to the audio podcast, please be sure to subscribe and give us a review on the platform you're listening on. Um, last time we looked at a 53-54 campaign, a lot of turbulence in there as the um, regeneration of Busby's side continues um, at great pace. And there were some inconsistent yet sometimes fantastic performances of the breakthrough babes. Uh, similar story this time around in the 54-55 campaign. Paddy, uh, before we begin the season, Matt Busby went on his jolly jumps again, this time without the Manchester United team, but he went to, to the World Cup. Absolutely, 1954 World Cup year, and uh, he visited the World Cup in Switzerland um, on club business to learn and and so on. But uh, he, he, he it was a labour of love because his favourite team was the uh, apart from United probably and United Youth uh, was the Hungarian national team. Um, we we touched in previous episodes about how the, the young players had, had watched on television at their digs as the Hungarians took apart England um, in 1953. This is now the Hungarians moving on, still unbeaten. Their unbeaten run is now stretching to four years to the World Cup. And they begin the World Cup with 9-0 over Turkey, 8-3 over West Germany after the Second World War. Germany had been partitioned into East and West, and, um, you know, everyone assumed they'd go on to the final, where they met the West Germans again. West, uh, They took the 2-0 lead, Julie took the 2-0 lead by half time, and it looked all over. The greatest team in the world would be crowned world champions. Germany hit back with three in the second half and, uh, and won the match. The Hungarians thereby becoming the first casualties of the legendary German resilience in international tournaments. So Busby was furious. I mean, he felt that everything had been stacked against the Hungarians, uh, who, who he said every player was an artist in his own right. You know, it was the total football that he loved, playing from the back and so on and uh, interchanging. And he felt that 
injuries, particularly to Pushkas, uh, had hampered them, and so had the fixture list, um, refereeing decisions, everything he felt had gone against them. So it was a rare uh, outburst of passion from Busby when his beloved Hungarians uh, didn't win the World Cup. But anyway, there were consolations, and back to Old Trafford for a new season's 54-55. And they trained, oh, by the way, they trained at the Furs in Fallowfield, which is now a hotel. Yeah, they, um, I always found that interesting about the Hungarian side, and, and I know really it's a United podcast, but we did touch on the Hungarians quite a lot in the last episode. But it's such a shame when you see a, a team that good and that revered not mm. get an accolade like the World Cup, which they, they truly deserve because of how good yes. a season it reminded me, I, 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 you know, looking back on it, I think I, I was uh, I covered the World Cup in 1982 when the, the Kelly Santana's wonderful Brazilian team were knocked out by Italy. Uh, deservedly, Italy played brilliantly and went on to win the title. But they, I think, there was a feeling among the neutrals. The, the I was in the press area, obviously, a, a sort of feeling of loss of almost bereaved of sporting bereavement somehow. And uh, it must have been very much like that for Busby and all other admirers of the Hungarians. Yeah, the Hungarians are about to get another taste of similar medicine later on in the season. Um, we'll come to that in due course. Um, a little bit of turnover as well. I mean, we talked about the side on the pitch, but off the pitch there was um, a little bit of transitioning as well, a lot of moving pieces. In the summer, Mr Watson who you may remember was the landlord of Duncan Edwards, Jackie Blanchflower, Mark Jones, Bobby Charlton, and a few more. Well, oh, sorry to say, but he had been having his way with um, somebody who wasn't Mrs. Watson. And um, it meant that having such ill repute was no good for Mr. Busby. So um, a lot of those young players, well, all of them were rehoused. Um, Duncan Edwards was well, well, they were all done, but Duncan Edwards moved. Um, into Mr. and Mrs. Dorman's house on Ghost Avenue, um, where Billy Whelan was staying. And Billy Whelan will come. We we have talked about him in, in previous yeah. episodes. He's going to feature more prominently in this. Dublin, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, so um, it, it just goes to show that United were, um, they had serious um, intentions with the way that those young players were being treated. Do you know what yes. I mean? It, it wasn't something they took flippantly. Shame, shame for Mrs. Watson, though. A bit of a double whammy right there. But um, <clears throat> yes, uh, that's true. Um, meanwhile, her erstwhile boys were uh, were moving on to ever greater things. And um, these were the boys, of course, who didn't live in, in Manchester already. Billy Whelan, Liam Whelan, uh, was, uh, who you touched on, was from Dublin. Lovely, modest, shy man with enormous talent. Um, and Bobby Charlton, who uh, you mentioned, had he'd been spotted and ardently pursued by Joe Armstrong yeah. up in the Northeast from, from his schoolboy days. Um, and uh, Armstrong had befriended uh, Charlton's mother, Bobby's and Jack's mother, who was very much the driving force of of their careers from the parental front, a great football fan herself, a great enthusiast, and and did a bit of coaching, I think, which was, I think, unusual for a woman at that time. But uh, Sissy Charlton, yes, and and Joe Armstrong very much 
kept in touch over Bobby's progress and Bobby now in Manchester and working like some of the boys now, now some of them they, they varied and there was a theory or a theory arose later John Giles told me about it John had been one of the one of the promising boys as well he'd come from Ireland as well as we learned late, a bit later and he said that Matt was very clever in that he got young players jobs uh, with friends and contacts in the Manchester area. Matt, very much part of what was known as the Catholic Mafia in Manchester in the, uh, in the period immediately before and after the Second World War. And uh, so, um, for example, um, Bobby... At first, when he came down from uh, from the northeast, he was actually given a place because he was bright. He was given a place at Stretford Grammar School, very near um, the the digs, and uh, but he felt sort of cut off, singled out somehow, and uh, he was offered a job on the ground staff, you know, the cleaning the boots and sweeping the terraces and so on. Uh, but uh, his mother didn't think that he should be doing that. So it was agreed that he should work for up in Broadheath, which you, you know, Mancunians will know, up in South Manchester on the way to Altering, more or less in, in Altrincham, um, to work for a company called Switchgear and Cowans um, as an electrical engineer. Um, I, I'm not sure how much electrical engineering he did. And the other um, players, young players who, who got jobs, Duncan Edwards, I think, started to train as a carpenter. Wayne, was it Joiner Carpenter? Yeah. And I don't think, uh, I, I'm not sure if Duncan Duncan's ability stretched to making beds or cupboards or anything, whether you'd, you'd want him knocking up the the carpentry in your house is, is, is very much... Uh, because, of course, they concentrated mainly on football and it was a way of giving them some money because they were paid as apprentices. And on top of that, they got their allowance from Manchester United and that enabled them to earn more than the average apprentice. However, on the ground staff, um, some of the good young players, um, Albert Scanlon, a Manchester boy, so didn't need digs, uh, outside left, like David Pegg, who was in digs because he was a Yorkshireman, um he was he was on the ground staff but scanlon i don't know is uh, one of these seems to be one of these lads who's always getting into a, a bit of fun whether he likes it or not um but like your friend gordon hill who came much later there was all fun seemed to follow him around and sure enough scanlon on his first day in the summer of uh, 1952 he'd reported to bill inglis uh, one of Busby's many assistants had been told to have a look around Old Trafford and he met some painters who were painting the stand and they said, uh, son, uh, if you want something to do, go and get us a sky hoop. So he, he didn't want to say he didn't know what a sky hoop was, but he didn't know what to do. But he said, yeah, yeah, sure. And off he went. And eventually he went. He was going out of his mind. He went back to English and he said, um, excuse me, can you tell me where I'd get a skyhook from? And Bill English said, there's no such thing as a skyhook, so I'm winding you up. And, um, but he carried on in the, in the, um, 
in their jobs, you know, the ground staff jobs, you know, sweeping the, the gymnasium, that's on a dark and stuffy place underneath the stand. And he had to treat the players' boots uh, with Dubbin. I don't know if you, Wayne, you'd be remember Dubbin. It was uh, it was the waterproof boots, wasn't it? And uh, make them more supple. Yeah, it's kind of wax. Than kind of wax. Of the, um, so you'd have that and then you'd have the shine afterwards. If, and the shine that. afterwards, right. Um, so this was uh, this was this was the way of life. You know, you either did did that sort of phony job, but uh, or you worked on the on the ground staff. But they were a happy bunch, you know. They were they were they were a happy bunch because they were they were playing for Man United. Yeah, a lot of these now breaking into the first team. And we talked earlier about um, Gibson and Crickman <laughs> and Rocker and and everything that they've been building towards. I don't maybe not something that they'd even foreseen that all these digs were sort of centralized around the Warwick Road going down between yes cricket ground and old Trafford. Um yes. and where all these young players would like sort of congregate outside the digs. Obviously all of Manchester United young fans who were local knew where all their idols were living. So they'd all be camping out outside the ground uh, outside the houses and stuff like that just for a chance. Yeah. Um, are, I mean, it's a little later on in this story, but um, it's a good example for this point where Duncan Edwards would later get a car and the young lads, I, I know Tom Clare quite well and he was a, a local lad at the time, um, very young boy at the time, I should say as well, and he idolised Duncan Edwards. He idolised yeah. Eddie Coleman as well and um, you'd follow him on to Archie Street. Uh, for anyone who, who's not familiar with Archie Street, it was the... Um, the Coronation Street, yeah. So that's where Eddie Coleman lived, right on Coronation Street. Um, alleged, well, the, the the real version of Coronation Street. Um, so Tom followed um, Eddie back from training one day, or from Eddie's duties as ground stuff, and he said, "Are you my bloody shadow?" So <laughs> Tom, Tom ran away, and then he went back to um, Ghost Avenue, where obviously um, Duncan was um, shining his car outside, and he just. He sat across the road gazing at him like a long lost lover. Tom said, You know, he absolutely idolized Duncan. But <laughs> all these lads, and the, the point I'm saying is that these lads had all the time for the young fans. They, they absolutely loved being around them. They'd have a kick around with them on the street. There's yeah. a real community social aspect to it. And obviously, yeah. it translated into the the bond that they had between the supporters as well. Well, this, this is it. I mean, you mentioned Eddie Coleman coming from Archie Street. The, um, he would walk to the ground, and and the early fans walking uh, down the, the down the cobbled streets of Salford and across the the swing bridge. Was it the swing bridge? They got one of the bridges over to over to Old Trafford Football Ground from Salford. You know, Eddie would be walking along with the the early the fans who you know going early to to bag their favourite spots on the on the terraces. So. Yeah, it was very much part of the part of the crowd, which probably more so than the older generation of players. You know, the Jack Rowleys and the and the Alan B. Chilton's maybe not as close to the fans as as these ones who's grown up with the fans and been taken very much to the fans' hearts as as uh, the crowds for the latter rounds of the FA Youth Cup yeah, had illustrated. Yeah, um, so the season starts with a bit of a bump, three-one uh, at home to Portsmouth. Um, yeah, to, to Portsmouth, I should say as well. So um, they, you know, obviously it's a little bit of a teething problem for United, but they they respond quite well. 
Um, winning the next five games, Sheffield Wednesday, Blackpool, among those put to the sword. United, really, the, these are the kids now sort of responding well to adversity. Um, yeah. Towards the end of August, I want to um, talk about their pre-match routine because there was a great piece by Tom Jackson in the MEN. And he was talking about how the, the diets had changed over the summer. Um, Busby, um, talk about nutrition. Not yeah. just a modern thing introduced by Ferguson and Wenger and everyone like that. Get a load of this story. So this is Tom Jackson. Um, those nice, fat, juicy steaks now being tackled by Manchester United players before a match are just what the doctors order. It's all a question of timing, say the medical men. Apparently, a tuck into a meal of grilled beef steak three hours before going onto the field helps players to replace tissues broken down during the game or by pre-match exercise. United's changeover from the customary boiled fish or chicken so long um, prolonged the footballer's bill of fare before going into action as almost um, 100% approval of the players. The smallest man in the side, Johnny Berry, five foot six and nine stone five pounds, thinks these steaks are wonderful. And so does that strapping young winger off Duncan Edwards, whose big frame calls for big eats. <laughs> and it's incredible to think of how cyclical. <laughs> Is. So, you know, they, they disregarded the fish and chicken for the steak. There we go. Yes, and, and of course, now at, at later it went completely the other way around. Yeah. People said, "Well, you, you know, the ex, the same experts or their their sons uh, and daughters um, said that the worst thing you possibly have is a steak." But um, this persisted. This kind of eating persisted. Um, for for several years, um, and and obviously it was then um, uh, it was then sort of uh, discredited. But they, I'm sure it goes in cycles. I'm sure in the middle of the 21st century, someone will work out that having pasta before a match is the worst thing you can possibly have, <laughs> and, and chicken will be also banned, and they'll go back to eating steaks. What I, I never understood about this story, um, and it's obviously true because um, Tom um, knew his sources, yeah. and certainly. But if we go back into this series, right at the start in the first episode, we were talking about Harry Worrell, who was scouted by Louis Rocker, and Louis mm -hmm. Rocker had sent him onto the pitch full of steak. So yeah. even Rocker knew that um, <laughs> he had his pitfalls. Um, but yeah, they, like you said, the, the game just swinging round, and um, now now it's yeah. steak few years it's just unbelievable how that sort of stuff happens um, yeah well of course they rock up with his italian me might think with his italian background might have known better but they of course bear in mind i can just about remember those years and and this was before even alphabet spaghetti had come in let alone the um, abundant uh, pasta that we find on our supermarket shelves today um, United starts the season summarised by this man, really, Duncan Edwards. Um, in terms of it being strong form and poor form, I mean, Edwards was already, he only just turned 18 in October, but he was the star of this team already. Mm. Often at the age of just 18, he was wanting to do everything himself. They, they had this eagerness where, and the reputation, because he'd started in the youth cup wins and because he was doing so well and progressing through the youth setups, there was... Um, there was a rush to try and get him into the England team, but they were thinking he was a little bit too young. And sometimes you would see this um, this eagerness translate into 
um, setbacks on the pitch. So United had started the season fairly well. They came up against a tough team in Wolves, and, and Wolves put them to the sword. A couple of entertaining games where they beat Cardiff 5-2, they beat Chelsea 6-5. Then they come up against Everton at Goodison Park and uh, lose 4-2. Two of those goals are penalties conceded by Duncan Edwards because... Mm. He's either got a, um, a habit of putting his hand, not his hands out, but because he's that eager to try and stop it and be all over the pitch, and he's in such a rush to run up the field, he's he's making clumsy tack, uh, tackles, he's making yeah. the decisions with his hands. And a lot of people, when they, they look back at Duncan Edwards and he gets his reputation as a man mountain, mm. it's important to remember these early formative years where mm. he did have these um, little sort of maturity problems. But it's yeah. kind of in, in a way, isn't it, Paddy, that Duncan's coming to the side and Busby's someone who's, who's usually quite reserved. He's usually someone who takes his time to make this decision. He might have even thought he had took his time with Edwards. Yeah. But, but he's very much a focal point of this side. And, you know, the, his growing pains, his growing problems, very much reflective of the side. But it's indicative of how much faith Busby has in him that the team's already been oh, built. Yeah. I, I, absolutely, that's that's absolutely right. The Everton match that you mentioned, where there were two, where do you, you don't have the date for that? Was it in November? It's the thirtieth of October. Thirtieth, ah, right, yeah. This is as the pitches are beginning to get boggy, and I wonder if this was a factor in it because one or two of the media um, were speculating around that time that Manchester United, with their footballing style, um, progressive style of play um, might not be too good on the boggy as the pitches got more boggy uh, and uh, this would this would kind of chime with that theory they were supposed to be in the mud away from home in other words can they do it at Stoke on a wet Wednesday night I, I, uh, I, this were, these were the questions that were asked of the of the young United side at that at that time. Of course, they were to answer them, but um, even 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 Edwards, as you say, got got caught up in this and, and made mistakes. Um, but it was uh, it was as as we as, as we keep stressing, it was a young side, a, a young side, by the way. That um, I mean, we keep talking about the slow death of the nineteen forty eight team. Um, Alan B. Chilton is still around at this at this moment, and in fact, he's. He was in the England squad for that for the World Cup yeah. in 1954. I didn't play, uh, but Roger Byrne did, and a, and a very significant uh, decision had been made to make Roger Byrne vice captain, and uh, Chilton took over the captaincy from Stan Pearson, who had a very brief spell before he he started a, an exodus to to Bury. Um, which are the two other, along with two other players, uh, including Henry Coburn. But uh, yeah, this was um, this vice captaincy being given to Roger Byrne was very significant because it showed that although Roger had only been really a regular for two, well, the title winning season where he played outside left mainly, um, he'd not been a, a regular for long, but already he was marked out as the future captain. And it was going to be a very, a very short uh, interim because, of course, Chilton was uh, really coming to the end. Yeah, um, United's five defeats before Christmas, all on the road, which gives an indication. Ah, uh, no wonder there was the, those press reports then. Yeah, 
Um, but the he talked about the the boggy pitches, and that possibly has something to do with. Well, it definitely had something to do with um, the December nineteen fifty four uh, game. Again, as we divert away from United for a moment, but this is a game very much crucial to the future of Manchester United, really, because um, the the Hungarians um, come back to England, but in club format. Yes, they do. Uh, in f six of them, led by the great Pushkas, uh, were part of the Honved team that came to play a friendly at Wolverhampton Wanderers. Now, why Wolverhampton Wanderers? Because Sh Stan Colours, Busby's great rival and friend, uh, was like Busby, a great believer in European football, but he had a kind of a different take on it. He believed fervently that Wolves' style, which was more direct than the relatively progressive Manchester United pass-pass-pass uh, uh, style of play, he believed, despite the two defeats in uh, 53 and 54 by the Hungarians, he believed that the English style would be proved uh, successful. And what could be better than a friendly? They played, played various friendlies. They didn't Wolves, they didn't stalled floodlights. United didn't have floodlights at this stage. Uh, City did. But Wolves had state-of-the-art ones because they had big plans. And these uh, friendly, some of which were televised. Yeah. And this Honved one was televised. And, of course, packed house. Wolves against what people realised, despite the fact that West Germany were world champions, as the world's greatest team. Yeah. Um, Honved were the club uh, equivalent of it and they came they were 2-0 up at half time at Molyneux and Wolves at half time uh, the pitch had been watered before and it was watered during it was watered at half time the apprentices were sent out by Stan Cullis to water it so that it would help um, uh, it Wolves more long ball style uh, in other words, holding up the lateral balls to the wingers, Hancocks and Mullins. So this was later to be done. Do you remember John Beck at Cambridge United and, and Wimbledon used to do the same thing uh, much later? But uh, yes, it, this this was done and it was successful because Wolves ploughed through this mud morass of a pitch at Molyneux and won the match. And it was on TV. And afterwards, Stan Cullis said, that this proved that Wolves were the best team in the world. Um, naturally, some people beg to differ. Um, and Busby, I was, would undoubtedly have been um, sympathetic to those who begged to differ and thought, well, we need to have it tested in a, a rather more widespread way. And among the people who felt that was Gabriel Anno, who'd been a, a French uh, top player, and was now a journalist and he came up with the idea and drove the idea of a european well it was he originally envisaged a league but it became a european cup and you know things didn't go buried in committees in those days it it happened very very quickly and we are talking 1954-5 it was agreed invitations were sent out to clubs that they felt would be in contention for top team in Europe. And it was agreed that the new competition would start in 1955-56, the next season. 
you know, they didn't mess about in those days. And um, the English team invited, were well, not Wolves, the champions, but Chelsea. Uh, anyway, the English FA um, and league as, uh, as ever insular island mentality said no. And so the only British representatives were the Scottish, Scottish team who were Scottish, Scottish team who were invited, who were hibs. Yeah. Um, but that's among... for that's for next season. This season carries on. And although Busby was definitely very, very pleased that this European competition that he craved for so long was just around the corner. And he had political work to do on that front, um, by the way, but we can, we can get to that later. Um, so he was very happy with the way things were going on the broader front. Um, but what he still had to his priority was to get the better of Wolves um, domestically. That's what he had to do first before worrying about anything else. And get the better of Man City, which proved even more difficult. Yeah, absolutely. Three uh, derbies that season, Wayne. I know, I know you don't want to talk about it. I know you don't want to talk about it. I'm here to provide balance and neutrality. Um, so I'm going to insist that we we uh, talk about the fact that Manchester City completed a treble over United in derbies that season. They did, and one of them very painful indeed. Um, just before we move on from Humvid, let's... Um, talk about the identity of one of those apprentices who were tasked with um, waterlogging the pitch, none other than Ron Atkinson, former um, Manchester United, well, future Manchester United manager in this series. Well, he was never dead. knew that, never knew that. Uh, when it was a 2-0, uh, he said, it's a good job we watered it because it would have been 10-0. Uh, <laughs> came back to win, but um, yeah, um, Interesting how those little things um, match up. But yeah, Atkinson uh, was amongst the um, Wolves apprentices at the time and he was there, very impressed with the Humbert team as well. Um, and yeah, as Paddy says, we'll come on to the European Cup in due course. Just before, and it's not a delaying tactic, Paddy, I promise we will approach those uh, delays, uh, derbies in due course. But you wanted to talk about the, um, the Duncan Edwards... Absolutely. And this is this is New Year's Day. I mean, this is the, the first day of 1955. And what a way to bring it in. You may remember that I've quoted H.D. Davis, known as an old international in the readers of the Manchester Guardian, Donny Davis. He was among a full house at Old Trafford to see a match against Blackpool in which Duncan Edwards finally scored and what a beauty now listen to this listen to this donny davis wrote darting forward he duncan edwards put every ounce of his prodigious strength into a mighty uninhibited swipe there was a sharp crack of boot on leather a veritable detonation this and a clearing of the atmosphere by a blurred object which first soared over Blackpool goalkeeper George Farm, upraised arms, then dipped suddenly and passed in under the crossbar. A scene of great commotion followed. Spectators hugged each other, then threw their heads back and brayed their approval. Edwards leaped and gambled like a soul possessed until his adoring colleagues fell upon him 
and pinned him down with their embraces. Well, I, I mean, with journalism like that, you didn't need television. You can see, we could, through listening to that and reading that, uh, we can see that goal, can't we? Absolutely wonderful. And Old Trafford is just, has just erupted. Um, so, yes, a great, a great, great day in the history of Old Trafford. Um, and uh, sooner or later, you're going to have to get back to the subject of a derby because the cup's coming up. Yeah, um, Edwards, by the way, that's the first of six that season. He scores another five. Uh, what was notable about that as well is Edwards was desperate to test himself against Stanley Matthews um, and obviously coming on top in, in a rivalry. It had been billed beforehand as well because Edwards was the... Um, Matthews was known as the king of English football, basically, and Edwards was the young pretender to the throne. So it was very important for him to make a statement in a game like that. Um, so... A big statement for Edwards, not just in scoring, but in dominating a game of that standard as well. So, yeah, um, come on, Paddy. Yeah. Put me up and it's there. onward and onward and upward for, for Duncan Edwards. And, um, you know, we will come on to his international debut. Um, bear in mind, he's still a teenager um, before the end of this season. But the FA Cup, which, of course, is the glamour competition of English football in those days, and uh, Manchester City knock United out. It get and I I think um, Chilton uh, was sent off in that one. They then play the third derby in the league, and this time City win five nil, and Chilton is given such a runaround that he asks for a rest. Mark Jones comes into the side. He's waited patiently. He's absolutely the future of this centre-half position at Manchester United. Everybody knows it. He comes in, and once he gets that shirt, it's very, very difficult to take it off him. And that's the beginning of the end of Captain Chilton's reign. Um, it also allows Vice-Captain Roger Byrne to become the leader of the team. And how significant was that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Chilton, you're quite right, sent off in the in the FA Cup game. In the last minute of that game, Reavy scores. Um, and, and at that point, because it's the Reavy plan, everyone is saying that the success story in Manchester is going to be the Reavy plan rather than the Busby Babes, because United... Um, with these veterans in sort of in different form, I mean, the halfback line looking very different. You've got a lot of even these young players who have been coming into the side. We've talked about a lot of them, like Downey and these kind of players moving out. But even like Eddie Lewis, he's moved on to Preston as well. Mm -hmm. I think quite well. Um, Coburn earlier in the season, um, stalwart of this series, was transferred to uh, Berry. So a lot of these um, transfers are seismic at the time. They look small in terms of when you look back over United. Um, when you consider yeah. some of the players that we're about to talk about, but these were big transfers that were happening behind the scenes. Yes, and and I mean not only that, that such was the production of young players um, that not only the the sort of middle ranking players who you've just listed, but uh, the the heroes of 1948, the cup winners, the heroes of Busby's great side. Uh, this was the the end of the remnants. Chilton gone. Um, wrote Jack Rowley as well. He was also a, a casualty of the um, 
yeah. of the uh, of the of the Derby defeat in in the FA Cup. He went. They both became player managers. Um, Chilton at Grimsby and Rowley at Plymouth, uh, different ends of the of the country. But uh, obviously, employers in the lower divisions were beginning to think, you know, that we, we, we need to buy the magic, you know, we need to get the, the magic of, uh, of, 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 of what's happening at Manchester United and build on it. And so, uh, you know, it's very easy for players like Jolton and Rowley to get player manager jobs. Yeah, um, United finished fifth in the league. A little bit of an inconsistent bump to end the season. Lost. Um, we mentioned the Derby defeats, but they also lost both games against Wolves four two. So the big games, the big tests, they were just coming up a little bit short. Um, I make no um, apologies for just returning to Duncan Edwards before we finish the season because it was a season of him breaking through on a major scale for United. Um, just to talk about the FA Youth Cup run. Um, there was a as they come in towards the final day, they play against Manchester City. Um, a great game, um, some great stories. Whenever you talk about Duncan Edwards as exploits at FA Youth Cup level, there's always invariably a story from every single game. We missed one from Bexley Heath in the previous um, seasons where um, they'd been saying, Where's your famous Duncan Edwards? and then he turned around and belted a goal in from 20 yards, and Jimmy Murphy. <laughs> a few expletives to remind them exactly where Duncan Edwards was. Um, but in this yeah. game, they played at uh, Main Road against Manchester City and they were losing 1-0 at half-time. The, the game was shrouded in fog. Um, as the team came in at half-time, Murphy would normally blast the players like, he, like we know that he did when they were 10-0 up at one point. He said, mm. lads, I can't even see what's going on. So <laughs> <laughs> and as they're going back out, Edward says, don't worry, don't worry, I'll, I'll turn it around. And... Mm. Uh, and they did. He scored twice, and United won two one. A similar story against Chelsea in the semi final. Um, this is a team to put into context um, of them looking to Duncan Edwards as a savior. Edwards is playing at number nine. Um, he's playing at number nine, by the way, in the youth team by now because Coleman and McGuinness are forming a, a good combination in the halfback line. And Jimmy Murphy is desperate to make sure that the players are coming through and they don't have an Edwards complex because. The first team are relying on him. The youth team are relying on him, and he's trying his best to make sure that um, that youth team and reserve team level that these players are coming through free of that. They they want to be able to express themselves in the way that the players before Edwards were doing. And he yeah. says to them at, at half time against Chelsea, no, before the game, sorry, he says, "Look, trust yourselves. Don't give it to Duncan all the time. If you, if you feel like you've got to give it to Duncan, don't make your own decision. Go for goal. Express yourself." Mm. Chelsea are one 0 up at half time. He gives them the right act. He's telling them um, what for. He's like saying, yeah, you know, Chelsea are no good. What, what are you playing at?" And then just before they go back to go on the pitch, he turns to Wolf McGuinness and, and to everyone else. He says, "Oh, and give it to Duncan whenever you can." When they do, and yeah. they win two one, Edwards yeah. scores both the goals. And then in the second leg uh, in that game, again it's a similar story and. And they're, they're losing, and Charlton looks for Edwards at a corner. You know, it's a similar story. Edwards is there like a lighthouse. I mean, again, mm. we're going to talk about how he's this dominant figure, but he's only 5'11. Mm. You know, he's not really the six foot five powerhouse people make him out to be, but it's the presence that he's carrying on the pitch. And yeah. it's almost like he's a force of nature in, in this semi final because he scores all the goals. United go through to the final. 
and they win against West Brom. You mentioned earlier in in the episode there that they win against uh, West Brom in the final. And um, just to put another perspective on this, mm. Eddie Coleman's the captain. Mm. Yeah. In the previous um, in the previous competition, David Pegg had been the captain. We talked about that last um, in the last episode. Pegg had been the the youth team captain. Yes. I want to refer again to this uh, with a, a different story that people might not know. As they were going down to a game, and Pegg was the new captain. I can't remember exactly who it was who had been dethroned as the captain. It may have been um, definitely one of the lads who's coming to the first team now. They've given up the armband, and Pegg was. Um, he was going to be the captain. Yeah. Because Edwards was dropping back into the youth team, everyone expected that he was going to get the armband. And Jimmy Murphy had gone to him and actually said, This is on the train down to actually to Bexley. Mm -hmm. So that yeah. game, game, game I just talked about. And he said to Duncan, I'm going to make you skipper today. And mm -hmm. Duncan went off down the train and then he comes back and he says, Actually, no, I think Peggy should keep the captains there. So Edward had been the captain. He'd been there for the earlier rounds, and Edwards had rejected the captaincy. Mm -hmm. Said his mate should keep it, which is um, says a lot about Duncan's sportsmanship. And yeah, him. yeah, he was, it was, it was, it was very much a team man. Although he felt, um, you know, felt a, a personal responsibility because of his presence and his ability. Yeah, but yeah, the, the 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 interesting thing is that he he actually missed some a couple of first team games towards the end of the season mm. to play to play in the FA Youth Cup, and 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 when the FA Youth Cup victory was completed, Duncan was already an England player, having yeah. made his debut in early April against Scotland in a seven-two victory over Scotland, which in those days was a phenomenal result it was i think it equaled england's biggest ever yeah. score against scotland um who you know were very close rivals in fact i think slightly ahead at that time in terms of numbers of victories so it was uh it was a big big deal that victory and and so even you know we've talked about his first goal for manchester united and now we're talking about his England debut. Everything seems to be explosive about Duncan Edwards. So picking up the FA Youth Cup was almost a, yeah. a piece of housework for him. <laughs> yeah, they, they, certainly this, um, this squad have got high um, ambitions moving forward. Um, let, let's talk about the um, the squad statistics then, as you usually do. Yep. Yep. They would regular goalkeeper this season, um, 37 appearances in all competitions, 40, uh, 40 in all competitions, 37 in the league. Crompton makes five appearances in, in the league. Um, again, he's become the more durable standing, uh, but very much on the way out and, and a regular reserve team level as well, I should say. Um, the youngster making his debut in the uh, fullback line is Jeff Bent. Jeff Bent is a, a Salford-born left-back, um, though he, he did cover on the right um, for Bill Fox occasionally as well. 22 at the start of the season. Um, he's a really interesting byproduct of this youth system, as, and we'll talk about a few of them who come through in this in this um, episode, really, in that he, he was a local lad with this loyalty to United and this desire to be around the group, and really Bent could have played for any top club, and you look at the appearances there on the screen, it's just 12 appearances in all competitions. This is a name who... Everyone will know from future episodes, as, as we'll come to discuss, his name has gone down in history. But yes. I think it always surprises a few people when he, he only made 12 appearances. But he could very well have played for any top club in the country. He was very highly rated. Whoa. And Busby, Busby got plenty of offers from 
from from from the the rivals you know title rivals even you know for uh, for Jeff Bank he, Jeff Bank could have become a first team regular at you know several other clubs um, and as you say only 12 appearances yeah so in the league this season that's because um, Roger Byrne with 39 in the league and two goals and 42 appearances in all competitions. He's a regular left back. Bill Folks with 41 in the league and 44 in all competitions. The regular right back. Uh, right back. You've got Ian Greaves, who's a standing again mm-hmm. uh, the left back. Um, this was, I would say, uh, in terms of where he's playing. Um, yes, players occasionally dropped out, but Ian Greaves is a local lad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah. more the case of Busby trying to be fair rather than the problems on the left-hand side. He'd had a few problems earlier in the decade with the left-hand side. Uh, and Ian Greaves will come back into this um, series in, in more testing times. But it's worth mentioning that at this point, it's just showing the strength of, of that left-hand side that they've got this amount of quality there. It's just incredible. Um, mm. Another one being uh, Paddy Kennedy, Dublin mm. ball right back in the 1953 Youth Cup team. This is his only appearances made this season. And it's in one of those 4-2 defeats against Wolves. Um, again, it's another testament to the embarrassment of riches that United have got on the left. Although for the next couple of years, Paddy will stay um, playing you, uh, reserve team football. Um, mm-hmm. he's going to be there. Mark Jones, as you mentioned, he breaks into the first team towards the end of the season in that um, centre-half line. Um, 13 appearances in the league. And... Um, that's it in all competitions as well. And you've got Alan B. Chilton, who until he has his own sort of um, breakout from the team, it's 29 appearances in the league and 32 in all competitions. Emery Coburn, who moved on early in the season, just one single league appearance. And that's really because Duncan Edwards is, is in there as um, the stalwart in the left half position. 33 appearances in all competitions, 36 in all competitions, 33 in the league, six league goals, as we already mentioned. First of those coming on New Year's Day. His partner in the right in right half is usually Don Gibson with 32 appearances, uh, 35 in all competitions, but also Jeff Whitefoot makes a fair number, 24 appearances in the league. Then um, accompanying those is a lad called Freddie Goodwin who's on the screen now. Um, he's a week off. And at over six foot, probably more of a menacing presence than Edwards should be, really, because of his size. But obviously... Yeah. Built a lot stronger and certainly more of a, an imposing presence than uh, Jeff Whitefoot. Now, right. uh, and and already making his way as a double sportsman because he by now he's already reached the Lancashire seconds. Yeah, in the, playing in the minor counties league, and uh, he's a seam bowler and he's doing very well in that as well. Yeah, a first class, like I said, multi um, sportsman in different disciplines. Yeah. Um, but yeah, stars for United um, in just five league appearances this season. But um, again, he'll be someone who we come to further down the line, as you can see. Makes a fair number of appearances for the club. Um, we mentioned Gibson already. I mentioned Whitefoot. Um, the forward line, then Johnny Berry is the ever present, really, on the right hand side, apart from he misses a couple of games this season. But he's, he's the dominant right hand side of player. Mm-hmm. 40 appearances, three just three goals. So not an outstanding goal scorer, but certainly a provider. Um, 43 in all appearances, like in, in all competitions, competitions, I should say. Um, on the left-hand side, Rowley was um, he was there making up the numbers on the left-hand side, basically, because I think Busby, for some part of the season, even though Rowley's getting on, it's almost like 
I think there was a bit of a wrench to drop a player who contributed so much. Obviously, he's the club's top scorer ever, ever at this point. He's an incredible um, goal scorer. But he, he makes just 25 appearances before he, he leaves to become player manager, um, as, as Paddy said. Mm-hmm. Uh, 25 appearances, eight goals in all competitions, seven in 22 in the league. Um, Taylor is the um, goal scorer, supreme in the front line, although not the top goal scorer this season. Um, Taylor, 20 in 31 in all competitions, 20 in 30 in the league. Uh, but the top scorer is actually Dennis Violet with 21 in 37 and 20 in 34 in the league. They're helped by Colin Webster, who um, scores 11 in 19. We mentioned him in the last episode. He's coming to the side. And um, 8 in 17 in in the league. And they are supplemented on the, on the left-hand side. So David Pegg, again, a, a gradual integration. He'd, he'd done quite well earlier in his career, but he's having a bit of a, a slower introduction into the side over the last couple of seasons. He makes only six appearances and scores a single goal. Um, but you do have a breakthrough here. Albert Scanlon, you mentioned him earlier on in the episode. Um, he's broke through as more prominent on this outside left-hand side. Um, four goals in 14 in the league. Um, a little bit about Albert. Um, apart from being a bit of a character, well, you might expect that he would be because he's a nephew of Charlie Mitten, a chip yeah. off the old block in, in most ways and one because he's an outside left. Um, he'd featured in both of the Youth Cup winning sides, um, signed pro terms in December 1952, and he was one of those players who, who joined on the ground staff. And really, Paddy, when we talk about those players who joined on the ground staff, it would be like Duncan Edwards clocking in for his carpentry course at 9 o'clock, then going back to train, Mm. Old Trafford, and then going back to clock out at five o'clock. They're, they're there in name only. But then, when they would get bored of being in that sort of procession, then they'd find them jobs on the ground staff, wouldn't they? That's generally how it would happen. Ah, uh, yeah, that's 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 absolutely right. But Albert and uh, David Pegg, two outside lefts, that really you you couldn't get them both in the team, and mm. so they they kind of uh, they were to to alternate but uh, a, a very a perfect example really of the of the near embarrassment of riches that yeah. the united uh, youth system was was uh, producing yeah well we said um, i mean just in this season alone burn if you said burn and peg are the prominent names everyone remembers from that left-hand side you've also got as we've mentioned there kennedy greaves scanlon yes. It's and, just the, and, and there was a debut in the first team that season for for, for Billy Whelan, you know. So um, it was just just a, a, a apparently endless conveyor belt of talent. Yeah, Whelan one goal in seven appearances in the league this season. Um, and yeah, we'd already mentioned him in previous episodes. He'd been signed for ten pounds from yeah. home. Um, on the 1st of May 1953 and three days later uh, four days later he was starting and scoring as inside right in the 7-1 win over Wolves. He basically was coming into that performance, uh, that area of the pitch where um, Pearson had played and done so well um, he was spotted one of those supported by um, Billy Bean um, playing for home form um, but yeah, a great player in the making there. He'd done so well. Not really played a lot of youth team football, but he'd been straight into the reserves and obviously deemed ready to play first team football as well. And we'll, we'll come to talk about how important Billy Whelan is in, in future episodes. Certainly um, a magnificent player uh, that United would have on their books. Uh, in terms of tactics, this is effectively the same. I should mention Jackie Blanchflower as well, because whenever you look at him through the squad list, it's always a halfback that he's registered as. 
but he was playing in the inside forward positions and doing quite well. But he's got 10 goals in 32 in all appearances and 10 in 29 in the league. So you look at the the um, the lineup there again, but we talk about Rowley and Rowley's on the way out and you do have, you could have put Scanlon in there because he's playing. Peg. Yeah, exactly. So there's a number of players there. Gibson, let's talk a little bit about Don Gibson because we didn't really yeah. talk about what had happened with him. Yeah, yeah. He played 32 games this season. Um, but he also become engaged to Sheena, Matt Busby's daughter, and mm -hmm. not wishing to face accusations of nepotism. Well, yeah. it's not really yeah. that. One, one game where, um, after it had become public knowledge, there was an, announce, an announcement put in the paper where Sheena it basically said they're, they're engaged, Sheena interested in horse riding, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And the following weekend, Gibson misplaced a pass. And once the porter shouted at him, oh, you want to go and get a bloody horse? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so talk, talk me... Talk me cause... Well, the, after after that, whether whether that was the the reason or not, uh, it, it it transpired that, uh, that Busby decided with what with one thing and another, it might be best if Don continues his career elsewhere. And that was eventually settled by an £8,000 sale uh, to Sheffield Wednesday. Not that far away, uh, just across the Pennines there, but um, it was uh, it was deemed to be the best thing all around uh, to avoid any uh, any embarrassment. Uh, so that was that was the, it. It was not as if United weren't, were short of players in Don's position. Don was I suppose it would be a number four or number six, and 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 you know there was Eddie Coleman coming through, Duncan Edwards obviously, um, but Freddie Goodwin you've already mentioned. So it wasn't as if the midfield was bare, uh, and it, it it produced a a, a useful eight thousand pounds for the for the club coffers. Yeah, um, an interesting um, so, move from Busby. Yeah. Really. He's basically saying, "I'm not going to be open to any kind of accusations like that." Yeah. Um, yeah, the the other absentee from the the squad completely, um, yeah. Aston, a club legend. Um, John had obviously was suffering yeah. through wilderness as well at the same time. Yeah. So, um, with United being so strong on the left hand side, they didn't need um, John Aston. Unfortunately, he was a veteran coming towards the end, but he was obviously going to stay at the club for a long time as well. Um, yeah. in, in other formats, um, United's key results this season. Uh, we always talk through the um, before we, we get to the key results, talk through the, the kits, what they had red, white, and black, blue, yeah. white, and black. The United review stays exactly the same with a handshake. Um, the key results you've already run, um, run through those embarrassingly enough for me. Uh, lost yeah. five home to Man City 2 0 against them in the cup in front of 75,000 at Main Road as well. A big crowd for that one, yeah. Lost both games to Wolves 4-2. Um, elsewhere in football, Paddy, um, Chelsea are the champions. Newcastle win the FA Cup. Joint record now with six wins. Um, Jackie Milburn scores in the first minute of the final there. So things are looking up. Um, United hopefully um, going to push forward to challenge for one of those trophies in the following season. Um, that wraps it up for this episode. If you're watching the video, please give it a like or subscribe. Join in the conversation in the comments section and uh, if you're listening on the audio platforms please be sure to subscribe and give us a review on the platform you're listening on thanks for watching thanks for listening we'll be back to see what the busby babes get up to next time away days are great but there's nothing quite like playing at home the same goes for mcdonald's 
Maximize your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus serving times, delivery fee, and terms apply. See McDonald's.com. This podcast is proud to be part of the Talk Sport Fan Network. Talk Sport. Powered by fans.